Hey everyone, I'm picking up where I left off last week in the first chapter of Mark, verses 29 to 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So Jesus went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak for they knew who he was. Very early in the evening, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Hey, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. I had the great pleasure last night of, of being at my sister's wedding. And um, I guess in some ways it wasn't the traditional fairy tale wedding. Uh, there, there, was a lot, there was a lot that was wonderful about it. But one of the ways that it, it might have been different to the traditional fairy tale uh, wedding is, is for my sister and, and for her new husband. Uh, it's a second go around. They both had marriages that didn't work out. They've both got kids from those marriages. And, uh, and so they're kind of joining their two families to form a new one. And, you know, with the romance and, and the beauty and, and everything that, that was, um, you know, kind of heart <laughs> touching about it, uh, both of them spoke really candidly about the bumpiness of combining two families and, and both of them because they're in the stage of life where, you know, they've got kids at school, super busy careers, my sister's studying as well. Both of them have their eyes wide open <laughs> to exactly what it is that they're getting into. They both spoke about the fact that, you know, they couldn't even consider moving forward with the relationship that they are in or any relationship if it didn't work for their kids. And uh, I think there's something really kind of profound about that because it strikes me that oftentimes the things that might get us in to a marriage aren't the things that really make it work necessarily or the things that would keep us there. Sharon and I were really fortunate uh, as we were kind of coming through the stage of life where we might begin to think about marriage to have Graham and Christy uh, in our lives at the time and uh, we didn't completely understand it in the moment in fact uh, there were many times I thought they were being a bit of a drag but Graham and Christy used to speak really regularly and candidly about how tricky marriage was. I mean, they had an amazing relationship. But uh, if, you, if you know Christy, 
and if you're watching this, you probably know Graham. Uh, they were very different people, and 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 their marriage uh, took work. Isn't isn't that the case with all marriages that really work, though? I mean, for Sharon and I, uh, it's not her amazing good looks or my significant charisma that has kept our marriage working. It's it's the grind of day-to-day -day mutual service and self-sacrifice. It's the fact that we are working to align our values and our long-term goals. It's, I mean, it, it, it's the kids to an extent too, I'm sure. I was going to say I'm sure Sharon would have left me if it wasn't for the kids, but of course not. Uh, but, you, you, you know, the fact that we have a responsibility to our children now uh, is one of the things that, that keeps us moving in the right direction and keeps us compromising in the best sense for one another. Being willing to sacrifice, you know, some of our personal goals or aspirations or comfort or convenience for the rest of the family, for one another and for the kids and aren't so many things that really matter in life like that. The things that might get us into them are not the things that make sense of them and continue to make sense of them and keep us in them. I think parenthood's like that. Uh, we might harbour some kind of romantic illusions about, about, about what parenthood's going to be like, but then it's just really hard work and kids are their own people. They do what they want. There's so much more to it than a kind of interesting Instagram feed. Work is like that too, you know. If we, if we chose our careers on the basis of the things that might have appealed to us about them when we were young, uh, we could very well set ourselves up for a life of frustration. There's something different uh, between what makes a career look appealing from the outside, the kind of romance or intrigue of wearing a fancy suit or having some sort of um, cultural capital or power or prestige. There's something different between all those things that might make a job attractive. And then actually doing work that we believe in, that that's good for us, that suits the way that we're wired up. The things that get us in are not necessarily the things that keep us in. We can have preconceptions about really significant things in life set us up to misunderstand what the, those things are really about. I think that's one of the things that's going on in this passage here. I've, I've talked a bit about uh, a feature of Mark's gospel that people refer to as the messianic secret. And it's this thing that's going on with Jesus in Mark's gospel where he almost seems to kind of hose things down when his identity is potentially revealed or revealed. And we see that in this passage, don't we? Verse 34 says that um, Jesus uh, drove out many demons, but he would not let them speak because they knew who he was. And then it seems like just as uh, in this sort of section of, of, of the gospel where he, his ministry seems to be taking off and he seems to be doing the things that I guess we would want and imagine we might preconceive uh, that Jesus would do, he withdraws into a solitary place. In fact, he says, um, let's go somewhere else. 
so that I can preach there also, for that is why I have come. What is going on there? Why is Jesus almost evading recognition? Jesus uh, is evading recognition as Messiah. That's why we call it the Messianic Secret. I don't know if you know what uh, the Messiah is, who the Messiah was, but Messiah basically means anointed king. And uh, Israel had this expectation of an anointed king, the prophets of the Old Testament. So many of them were writing from the context of Israel's captivity and exile in Babylon and foreseeing this moment in the future when this anointed king would restore Israel, restore them to their land, restore them to their glory. And so in the time of Jesus, the first century, where they're occupied by Rome, they held on to this vision of a Messiah, an anointed king, who would help them to throw off the shackles of uh, their, their, their oppressors uh, and those who, who are ruling over them in the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus is beginning to do the sorts of things that might get him labeled as the Messiah, labeled the Messiah in Mark's gospel, he's hosing it down. He's hosing it down. Some people think that maybe what's going on here is, is Jesus is wanting to make it clear uh, that his kingdom and and the good news that he brings is about more than just miracles is about more than just good works they say the distinction to be made here is between the work that jesus is doing casting out demons and healing the sick and the message that he is preaching and and i think it's a misunderstanding actually because jesus never stops doing those good things and uh, those good things seem integral to what we would hope the kingdom of god was about what is actually going on here is that jesus is aware that there's a strong possibility that the crowds might misunderstand something about the kingdom and his kingship something about the good news the video that i set up in the playlist from the bible project today talked about this phrase the good news of the kingdom the good news being a declaration of the rule of a new king coming the messiah the anointed king coming and 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 bringing with him god's rule and reign where we had been ruled or oppressed by those who were our enemies, who were not God. The thing is, the reason why Jesus seems to shrink back from some of these moments to sort of hose his identity down when his ministry seems to be getting some kind of momentum, he withdraws to a salary, a salary place, a solitary place. The reason he does that is because he's guarding against, guarding against being crowned king or 
truly anointed Messiah outside of the timing of his father in a way that might obscure something of who he is as king, something critical about the kingdom. The video uh, that came before this in the playlist from the Bible Project might have given you a little bit of a light bulb moment at this point because it speaks to the fact that the coronation of Christ as king occurred when he was exalted upon the throne with a crown of thorns placed upon his head. Jesus knew that if he was carried by the crowd uh, while he was in the midst of of doing the things that they might have expected uh, the Messiah to do, that people might miss that critical moment where he was crowned king and exalted as king as a part of God's plans on the cross. The messianic secret, I believe, this tendency Jesus has to hose down that he was the Messiah was because he knew the Father's plan to the extent that he understood that the whole story did not make sense without that moment where he was on the cross at the very center because that is fundamental to the kingdom of God and the kind of king that Jesus is. In uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, there's uh, this section where it talks about There's this section where it talks about this and the kind of king that Jesus is. And it says that Jesus, while we were his enemies, died for us. What was happening on the cross was the institution of the kingdom of God through this moment where God, in the person of Jesus, dies for his enemies. That is fundamental, integral to the kingdom of God. You can't understand what the kingdom of God, you can't understand who the Messiah is without that. Jesus was guarding against the fact that people might make him a king in their image, the king that they wanted, the king that they expected, the Messiah that they longed for, where he intended to do so much more, not just to liberate Israel from their oppressors, but indeed to liberate all of creation and humanity from our oppressors in sin and death. If we don't get that, we don't get that Jesus is the king who would die for his enemies, and we don't understand the kingdom at all. Hey, that's a, <laughs> a big thing to get our heads around. So I'm going to pray for us right now and leave it there. God, I pray that we would have this picture of your kingdom that you 
show us through Jesus that, Lord, we would never consider that we understand your kingdom or participate in your kingdom without keeping at the center that you are in Jesus, the king who is elevated, who is crowned in the moment where you lay down your life, even for your enemies. Lord, we can't follow your example there without the spirit. It goes against our nature to be as loving and self-sacrificial as you are, but God, we want to be. We want uh, to be able to live out the words that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when you call us, you bid us come die. Help us, Lord, to be people in your image, willing to share your love by the laying down of our lives, our agendas, our power for the service of others, the redemption of others, to make your good news known that you love us enough that you would do that for us. Amen. Hey, have another great week. See you soon.